I want to begin the message today by, um, we're going we're gonna to stay within our series, and um, I want to begin by saying something about me that some of you uh, may or may not know or don't care, but um, I like to inv- uh, in, be in the investing world. I just love, just as a hobby of mine, besides investing for my future like we should all do, I like to do it for a hobby, so I pay attention to the index funds and the ETFs and the individual stocks and companies. It's just something that I do for fun in my spare time. Maybe that doesn't sound fun to you. I also do football, so that's okay too, right? But anyhow, it's, just a, it's, a, it's an interest of mine. And in the investing world, there's a, a saying among financial institutions when it comes to people's investments, kind of a disclaimer statement. And here's the statement that they use. They say, past performance is no guarantee of future results. Have you heard that before, anybody, man? Past performance is no guarantee of future results. What does that mean? What it means is that, that they're telling their clients, you know, whether they're a fund manager or whether the, you know, they're talking about an individual company that someone may own stock in, they're saying, hey, we've had a good track record. You should, you should invest in our fund or you should buy this stock or whatever it may be because the, the past performance has been really good and that's a pretty good indicator that they're a trustworthy investment. But, disclaimer, past performance is no guarantee of future results. Something can change, Right? In other words, don't assume that an investment will continue to do well in the future simply because it's done well in the past. But it also means the opposite. Don't discount an investment simply because it's done poorly recently because it can improve. And so past performance is no guarantee of future results. Now, as I thought about that statement the last couple of weeks, I I thought about this message today, and I, I thought, you know, that's not just true about investing. That's true about people, right? That's true about life. That's true about life as well. So I want to talk about that today. And we will return to that thought later in the, in the hour here. Let me remind you that we are taking a journey through the biblical narrative. We are taking a journey through the Bible stories. We, we started last year back in the beginning And we are in the middle of the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew story. And we have made our way to King Solomon's life. Solomon is, as we saw two weeks ago, a wonderful king. Or he was a wonderful king. He he took over his father's throne. And the first thing he did was he got busy doing his father's wishes to build a temple in Jerusalem. And sure enough, they, they built the temple. It took seven years to complete because of all the prep that was done ahead of time. Spent another 13 years after that building his own palace. And then really, from all of Solomon's reign, for his entire reign as a king, they were rebuilding Jerusalem. From the palace to the temple to the courtyards of the added government buildings to reinforcing the wall. They taxed the tribes of Israel. Now that they came together under a centralized government, under a king, they taxed them to pay for all this improvement. And they also drafted the sons and daughters of a certain age, not to a military draft, but to a, a, a work conscription to, to do the work to build the city and the kingdom uh, through manual labor. And it was a lifelong project of Solomon's. And Solomon, as a young man, said, I can't do all this on my own. So he began to pray and said, God, I want wisdom. And he did the wise thing by seeking wisdom. And God gave it to him. God gave it to him. And he was known for it all his life. And we saw a couple weeks ago uh, about that. It says in 1 Kings 10, 23, so King Solomon became richer and wiser 
than any other king on earth. People from every nation came to consult him and to hear the wisdom that God had given him. So he was, he was the person you came to get into the room. You wanted to be in the audience. You wanted to hear the, the talk at the seminar. You wanted to get one-on-one -on -one consultation with him because of his wisdom. He was world-renowned for it. As we saw last week, he put a lot of his writings down in Proverbs, and you can still read many of them to this day. It says in verse 25 that year after year, everyone who visited him brought him gifts of silver and gold and clothing and weapons and spices and horses and mules. The weapons part makes me laugh, you know. Like, uh, oh, king, we've come and brought you gifts today. What have you brought me? Well, I brought you silver. I brought you gold. I brought you nice clothes. I brought you a bazooka. That's what I was hoping for right there. So anyhow, they brought him gifts and made him well off. Now, this is the story that we've seen for the last two weeks. And I would love to end it there. I would love to leave Solomon on a high note, and you'd be all so happy about that. But here's the truth, is it gets bad from here. And it's hard when people we admire, people we respect, take a bad turn. It's always difficult. But here we go. In 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1, here's the, the back half of Solomon's life that you might not know as much about. It says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, among the Hittites. Now, just a little context here. Uh, when Solomon was young, he married Pharaoh's daughter. That was very common in those days for kings to marry other kings' family members because it caused national, it caused the nations to be at peace with each other through mutual marriages and mutual interest. But Solomon kept marrying more and more people. Now, this was a big deal in Israel because God had told back in Moses' day that future kings of Israel were not to multiply wives to themselves because it would steer them away from effective leadership and from following God. But Solomon's dad, David, did it anyway. And Solomon did it times 10. I mean, Solomon went crazy with lots of wives and marriages. And it says that he married, he says he loved many foreign women. And that's not a, that's not a statement about race or a racial statement at all. The reason that's pointed out is explained in the next verse. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts toward their gods. So contextually to understand what's happening here, remember that this part of the world back then, and honestly, a lot of the world today, and every nation we go to, including ours, there are people who have very bad views and sometimes very bad religion. And in those days, there's a lot of very messed up religion People didn't believe like we believe in the major world religions today in a, in a monotheistic God or one creator of all things. That's, that's uh, Judaism and Christianity and Islam embrace monotheism, but a lot of other religions don't and did not. They'd worship things they'd create or objects in nature, and they'd make idols. And the problem with the, the religions of those days in that area, you had the Ashtoreths, uh, the, uh, Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. You had Baal. You had Molech. And a lot of these religions included some very messed up practices. Some of the worst of them included cult temple prostitution, forms of, tra of tra trafficking, and uh, child sacrifice. I mean, terrible stuff. And, and when you hear those things, you wonder, how could anyone who considers themselves a religious person justify such terrible atrocities? But isn't that how it always goes in the world? That when you're in something your whole life and it's normalized, you start thinking, this is not bad. That's one reason why even 150 plus years ago or so in our own country, there are a bunch of people who call themselves Christians who run around owning people as slaves and justifying it as okay because it was just normalized. So they think this is fine. 
Because now we look back and say, how could anyone believe that's okay when we know it's not? But guess what? At one time, people who called themselves people of faith embraced slavery. Because we get into a bad mindset when you're in a culture that justifies things, you can justify it spiritually. And the world back then, many people, part of their religion justified the, the cult temple prostitution, the trafficking, the child sacrifice, the stuff that you can't even fathom was part of their religions. And when God called, uh, when God said, I'm going to send my son into the world, he wanted to start a nation to get everyone's attention around them to, to bring Jesus into the world. Before he did, he, he started with a man to form that nation, Abraham. And Abraham feared God, the one God creator of all things. And, and, and he said, Abraham, I'll make a deal, a covenant or a contract with you and I'll bless you. And generations later, when the, his descendants were slaves in Egypt and he brought them out under Moses, he said, watch out, because if you, if you start marrying people around you who don't have your faith, they might pull your belief. And when you get around people in close relationship who don't share your values, their values rub off on your values. And, and, and if you're not careful, you'll start accepting things that are not acceptable as being normal. And I want you to be careful who you yoke up with for your faith's sake. And so that was kind of a, a deal that God said all the way through to all the people of Israel, but especially to the kings. And yet it says Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. We find out in verse number three that he had 700 wives of royal birth. So in other words, as these people came from all these nations to hear his wisdom, he began to say, hey, you look good. Or hey, you got any, you got any cousins? I don't know. He began to just marry like 700 wives of royal birth. And he had 300 concubines. Concubines are basically, they're not exactly, they're kind of like white, they're kind of like maids with benefits or something, I don't know. They're weird. They basically, they have, they have children for him, you know. So he has a thousand women in his life. And in fact, it says that these, these wives did turn his heart away from the Lord because they did influence his life. They did influence his day to day, how he saw things, how he viewed the world, and eventually pulled his heart away from what God had given them. And by the way, when, they, when God formed this nation in a messed up world, he said, here are best practices. Here are best practices for you. Follow my ways and your nation will thrive. But Solomon got pulled into some other ways of living and other ways of thinking through all his marriages. It says in Solomon's old age, this is so sad here, because Solomon was awesome. But in Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord his God as his father David had been. Solomon worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. In this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. It's hard when people you expect veer off course who were once walking the walk and you looked up to them and respected them and they fall off the rails or people that you're friends with and they've been doing so well and then all of a sudden something changes. Solomon has such a departure and so many people who looked to him for wisdom had to be perplexed in his later years. In verse 9, it says, The Lord was very angry with Solomon. Why? His heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And this is important. God was frustrated because since Solomon was a, ba a boy, it says the Lord loved the child. And we saw one of two stories a couple weeks ago where God actually appears to him and says, What do you want? And talks with him. And it happened twice. And yet Solomon, for all the extra enlightenment that he had, in his older years, his heart got pulled away over women. 
It says in verse 10 that the Lord had warned Solomon specifically about worshiping other gods, but Solomon did not listen to the Lord's command. In other words, God was saying, Solomon, you've done well so far, but be careful. Your past performance is no guarantee of future results, but Solomon didn't listen. Solomon said, I don't care. This is the direction I want to go from here because this is where my mind is now. Verse 11, this is big. So now the Lord said to him, since you have not kept my covenant and you have disobeyed my decrees, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your servants. God says, Solomon, you are about to lose your kingdom. Now, not, it wasn't going to happen right away. The kingdom was strong because David had passed on a strong kingdom to Solomon. And Solomon, for most of the time, kept it that way. But as he abandoned God and as he abandoned best practices that God gave them, he began to weaken the kingdom. And, and God said, by the time your son, by the time your son is grown, and he's the next king after you, you will have weakened it. And he's going to weaken it even further than you did. And the kingdom is going to be ripped away from you because of the direction that things are heading. But God did promise Solomon that one tribe, remember Israel had 12 tribes, one tribe would stay with him and his descendants after him, the tribe of Judah. Why? Because that's the tribe that they came from. That was the tribe of David, their father. That's the first tribe he reigned over before he had the whole kingdom. That Judah would stay with David's family, but the rest of the nations, 10 of the 12 tribes would break off and he would lose them because he walked away from God and from God's teachings of best practices as a person, as a nation, as a king, it was going downhill. Well, from here, I'm gonna tell you some things that happened. A few adversaries began to emerge in Solomon's life. I, I would love to tell you some stories. I, I told the people in first hour, I had a couple extra stories for them because we had extra time because there was not maybe dedication first hour. So they, uh, I'm gonna cut some things out for you. But basically, a couple adversaries I'll put on the screen, uh, Hadad the Edomite and Rezan the new king of Aram. That is a cool story. Hadad's story is cool. You should read it for yourself and, and research it. I'd love to see me afterwards. I'll tell you in person if you want. But I, I don't have time today and it does not move our narrative along. I'm just gonna skip it. Although it's probably the most interesting story of the day. But moving along, these enemies raised up and they began to be a pain in the neck. They began to chip away at the kingdom and, and, and chipping away at Israel's strength externally. But not just externally, but internally, another person emerges as a problem for Solomon. Another primary person emerges that I want you to meet today because he's going to be important in a few weeks here. Let's read about him together. In 1 Kings eleven twenty six, 26, it says another rebel leader was Jeroboam. Maybe you've heard of Jeroboam. Well, here's the story. Jeroboam was the son of Nebat, one of Solomon's own officials. This is not an outside threat. This is someone on the inside. He came from the town of Zareda in Ephraim. His mother was Zeruah, a widow. So in other words, he was raised by a single mom. He was raised by somebody who had to take care of him. And he learned as a young man to work hard. He was industrious. And he was excelling in his adult years. It says in verse number 27, this is the story behind his rebellion. You see, Solomon was rebuilding the supporting terraces and repairing the walls of the city of his father David. So this is during the time of Solomon's lifelong rebuilding of Jerusalem, taxing the nation, drafting their young adult children to do the work. 
And Solomon is currently at this stage having the terraces of the walls rebuilt. And in one of the people who has been drafted into his service is this young man, Jeroboam, and Jeroboam is excellent. It says in verse number 28 that Jeroboam was a very capable young man. And when Solomon saw how industrious he was, he put him in charge of the labor force from the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, the descendants of Joseph. So Jeroboam became the man that Solomon entrusted to lead all the recruits or the uh, conscripted labor from two of the tribes of Israel. He says, Jeroboam, you're so good. There's so much leadership potential in you. I'm going to put you over all these people. They answer to you and you answer to me. And Solomon gave Jeroboam a platform because his leadership was blossoming so much. However, it says in verse 29, one day as Jeroboam was leaving Jericho, the prophet Ahijah from Shiloh met him along the way. Ahijah was wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone in a field, and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing, and he tore it into 12 pieces. Can we just acknowledge how weird the story is? Like Jeroboam's going home, his leadership is blossoming, Jer- Solomon's put him in charge of, of people, he's, 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 his, his influence is, I mean, he's amazing. But he's ho- heading home one day after work, and as he's crossing this field, this person's walking across the field, and they're going to cross paths. Should I say hi? Should I keep walking? And then he realizes, I think he's coming to see me. And he's, he's kind of an odd-looking person. Oh, he's a prophet, because apparently all prophets look odd. You know, he's odd. And he's coming to talk to me, and, he, and, the, and the prophet stops. And he's, they're standing there in the field by themselves. Hi. Hi. And then the prophet takes this cloak, this brand-new cloak, and he tears it right in front of him, just tears it into 12 pieces. I imagine Jeroboam's like looking over his shoulders, you know, what is going on here? This is weird. And it says, then the prophet said to Jeroboam, take 10 of these 12 pieces, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon, and I will give 10 of the tribes to you. So it's all a a big bombshell of an announcement. The prophet is saying, hey, Solomon's been warned by God privately. He's going a bad direction. He's not listening. He's been warned he's going to lose his kingdom in the next generation. And I'm letting you know, young man, that that God sees leadership in you. You're growing. Things are blossoming. You're going to, when the kingdom shatters, it's going to be a tragic day for the nation. But the ten tribes are going to need new leadership. You are the new leadership. You're the one to lead the ten tribes into their future. Down to verse 37, the prophet says, I will place you on the throne of Israel, and you will rule over all that your heart desires. Now God is speaking to him through the prophet, and God says in verse 38 to Jeroboam, and this is so powerful, in this verse here, God is going to make a covenant with Jeroboam. Now remember the word covenant means testament or covenant or contract. So we have a lot of covenants in the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, God made a covenant with Abraham. He made one with, with Israel under Moses. He made one with David. He made one with Solomon. And some people broke those contracts or those covenants, those arrangements. Basically, it was a kind of deal where God would say, I'm going to bless you for no reason other than that I'm good. I'm going to be good to you for no other reason than that I can because I want to. I'm going to bless you, but now that I've blessed you, I'm going to say, if you'll do this, God says, then I'll do this. Here's the covenant. I've been good to you. If you'll follow me, if you'll do this, I will bless you this way. 
And, and there's so many of these in the, in the scriptures. And Solomon had one, but Solomon has abandoned it. And so now God says to Jeroboam, if you'll do it, here's my deal with you. If you listen to what I tell you and you follow my ways and you do whatever I consider to be right, and if you obey my decrees and commands as my servant David did, then I will always be with you. I will establish an enduring dynasty for you as I did for David, and I will give Israel to you. So this is interesting because Jeroboam is given the same promises, the same opportunity, because one day in the future, when the kingdom falls apart tragically, he would be the one to take over 10 of the 12 tribes. God says, I'll make a deal. Follow me. I'll bless you like I did, I promised David. Like I promised Solomon. Solomon's gone off the rails. I'm still gonna bless the, the throne after Solomon for David's sake to some degree, but a lot of it gets lost, but I'll bless you in your future as well. Now, somehow this private conversation gets out. I don't know if Jeroboam told one person who told another person who, I don't know how it gets out. But somehow Solomon hears that Jeroboam, this young leader that he's been promoting, is not just a capable helper to him, but is now a threat to him. And it says in verse number 40 that Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam. But he fled to King Shishak of Egypt, and he stayed there until Solomon died. Now, in this case, Solomon has just turned into the kind of person that King Saul was to Solomon's daddy, David. Remember? I mean, back in the day, King Saul got jealous of David, and he tried, uh, tried to kill him. And now Solomon's getting insecure about Jeroboam. He's trying to kill him. David was promised the throne of Israel someday. Jeroboam was promised the throne of the ten tribes someday. David ran for his life from Saul into exile. Jeroboam runs for his life to exile. Solomon has become the villain that Saul was to his own father in hunting down the guy who, instead of just changing his heart before God and getting things right, he tries to kill him. And Jeroboam leaves the country. And Jeroboam is important. Now, I'm gonna, I'm, my story is done today. I'm going to talk for a little bit here about application today. Sometimes our stories, the application weaves into the story today. I'm going I'm to share it on the backside. But here's what I want to say to you. The story today, I don't know how interesting it was. We skipped a really good tidbit there for sake of time. But it's an important story because it connects us to what comes next. And in just a few weeks, we're going to start a very wild series within a series that is going to be, it's going to be movie worthy. I, I promise the stories are going to be epic, but we're going to get there soon. For today, we're going to stop the story. Here's what I want to say to you. This story has always bugged me since I was a young man, since I was a young pastor 25 years ago. It's bugged me. And I've always wondered, and I want to ask you, what happened to Solomon? Like Solomon, like wisdom, Proverbs, Solomon, you know, that's what we know him for. That's what we know him for. What happened to Solomon later on? That he ended up in the spot that we're reading about today. It's like he chose to do what he should not have done, convinced that he could handle it. And by the way, isn't that what we all do? Isn't that what we all do whenever we make bad decisions? Aren't we always making them because we get to the point where we believe I can handle it. I got this. Right? That's what we do. We get to a spot where we say, hey, you know what? I know that other people shouldn't behave this way, but look at me. I'm successful. I've achieved a lot. I'm a strong person. I'm a strong believer. I can, 
mess around and I won't find out, right? I'm going to go ahead and indulge. And Solomon must have thought that he could handle it. After all, he was the wisest. He was the richest. He was the greatest. Certainly, if anyone could break the law about marrying all these different women, all these different religions, he could do it because he had wisdom, special wisdom. People trusted him. He had influence. And yet, it wrecked him in his later years. And Solomon would struggle with that mindset later on in his life. He would learn some valuable lessons from it. By the way, he would write a whole nother book of wisdom literature from this rough experience, in, in part from this experience, part from just life, that is, I think, every bit as good as Proverbs, in my opinion. I love it. We'll study that a different week as well. But for today, I want to remind you what we said at the beginning, that old investment advice, that past performance is no guarantee of future results. That's not that's just true for stocks you own or funds that you invest in. That's true for life. That's true for people. How many of us have known people that we've looked up to? Maybe they're friends of ours that we admired. Maybe they're pastors or, 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 or influencers or, some, or coaches or somebody that we, we live to. At some point, they're like, man, that, that person's awesome. And then sometime later in life, they just go off the rails and you're thinking, what happened? It hurts. I never thought you but that's not true for others that we may know. That's true for you and me. That it's easy for us to sit back at a spot in our life as we get older and to rest on our laurels. And I know there's a lot of teens and young adults who are gonna, you're just getting started. I'm gonna talk to you. But for those of us who've been around a little while and you say, I've done some things right along the way, it's easy to rest on your laurels. Hey, I used to serve the world. I used to do good around me. I used to be a, a helpful, I used to be this kind of a person. But you know what? I'm over that now. I'm just, I'm just, I can afford to go a different direction. And we have to be careful. You can't coast on your accomplishments and expect to avoid outcomes for current actions. So let me explain it to you this way. God made this world. He made this world with certain laws that govern it. And we put words around those laws to explain them for our sake, but they're just laws of nature. Some of them are spiritual laws, some are physical laws. For example, physical laws, we put words to explain the law of gravity or the law of thermodynamics. But there are also other laws that are both physical and spiritual that are true in this sandbox in which God has placed us. And one of those principles is the law of sowing and reaping. And here's how it goes. You harvest what you plant. Now this is, I seem like a detour, but I'm going somewhere, so follow with me. You harvest what you plant. In other words, if you go out and plant pumpkin seeds, you're going to grow pumpkins. If you plant cucumber seeds, do cucumbers have seeds? I don't know. You'll grow cucumbers. Okay, here's the thing. I don't know. Here's the thing. Don't, you don't go out and plant some pumpkins and say, I am so upset. Where are the cucumbers, right? Because you didn't, you, you, you harvest what you plant. We understand this, right? Here's what, here's what I want to help us to think about today. This is true in life. This is a spiritual law as well as a physical law. That what we do in our life, what we do in our life, we're planting things in our path of life that will grow up later. And we harvest what we plant for good or bad. Now here's the problem. You don't harvest what you plant right away, do you? No one's ever gone out and planted something and said, no one's gone over and planted something and said later the same day, hey, where's my crop? I planted this morning, where's it at? No one goes up the next day and say, hey, where's the harvest? They understand that it takes a while to plant and to wait. 
and to wait <laughs> and wait and hope the weather doesn't make it harder to get a good crop. And, but they did their part. They tilled the ground. They planted the seed. They water. They weed if they have to. And they wait and wait and wait until eventually the harvest comes. But when the harvest comes, they don't go out to the field. You don't go out to your garden and say, check it out. Look what I planted today. No, you're like, check it out. This is the harvest from back when. You harvest what you plant, but it comes later. You know, what the, you know what a harvest is? A harvest is a lagging indicator of what you planted, right? And so you harvest what you plant. But here's, what I, here's the thought that I want to attach to Solomon today, and I want you to think about this because it's just on my mind. You harvest what you plant, but you're also planting while you're harvesting. So in other words, yes, when I first get started in life, I'm planting, I'm going to harvest it someday, not tomorrow, not right away, not next week, you know, but, but someday. But, but once the harvest comes, I'm not done. I am also planting for the next harvest. I'm doing things now that will affect the next time. And so this current harvest is maybe totally detached from what I'm planting today because the harvest is a lagging indicator. But while I'm harvesting, I'm planting. And Solomon planted so well in his early life, seeking God's face and seeking wisdom. And, and, and boy, did God just bless him. His life blew up in a good way. But while he was in the harvest of all his good years, he began to plant some bad decisions. And it must have felt like, hey, what's the big deal? I got this. But that harvest comes later too. That's a lagging indicator as well. So when you're young, you say, hey, I want to, how, do I, how am I going to treat my body? Am I going to take care of my body with what I put into it? Diet, exercise, substance abuse perhaps, whatever. Um, and how I treat my body for bad will have a, a harvest later on. And how I treat it for good will have a harvest, but it doesn't come overnight, does it? How many people quit working out because they tried for two days and they're like, <laughs> two days of core workout and I don't have a six pack of abs yet. You know, I'm done. Um, it's, it takes a while. But when you, or, or you've done bad things and you're like, hey, hasn't burned me yet. I'm okay. But you take, abuse your body and it catches up to you. You take care of your body and in time, the harvest comes. You, you take care of your finances and, and not right away, but over the growth curve of time, it pays off. You, you squander them. You might be okay for now, but the harvest catches up with our financial responsibility. Our relationships, we, we take our relationships for granted and they might be okay for now, but at some point we reap the harvest. Or we invest in our relationships carefully and, and over time, through one difficult day at a time perhaps even, the harvest comes around. You invest into your spiritual life and eventually reap a harvest from that or you neglect your spiritual life and eventually reap a harvest from it. My point is that everything we do is sowing a seed that we reap later on for good or bad. We harvest what we plant, but you're also planting again while you're harvesting what was planted before. So my, goal, my statement to you is this. If you're just getting started in this whole thing of life, plant wisely. But if you've been down the block a little ways and you're living with a harvest, I'm talking to two groups of people today who've been down the road. One, you've been living in a great, great harvest from doing some good things along the way. Be careful, like Solomon. Don't neglect the importance of planting for tomorrow's harvest. Or I'm talking to people today who you say, Arlen, I've, I've, had, I've got a rough one. 
I didn't, I've not done, I've not done well. I've made a lot of dumb choices and they, they've caught, I messed around and I found out, you know. Time has caught up to me and I'm discouraged. I'm discouraged. I'm discouraged. I want to say today, the harvest is what it is. But here's the good news for you. You're planting now what's your later harvest. So you can plant well today. This is so important. The, the problem with both groups is we get stuck on the past. Some people say, I had a great past and I've reached a, a great, it's come around in my life in a great way and we want to live off the past. Hey, that's wonderful, enjoy it. But, but listen, that's, that, that's the past. What are you planting today? And others, we want to sit there and get discouraged by the past and say, oh, I've made some mistakes. I can't ever undo what's been done. Hey, that's affected now. But what are you planting today for tomorrow? Or let me change the wording around a little bit here in case this helps you better. I want to send you home with this statement. That today's choices matter. No matter what yesterday's choices were. Today's choices matter no matter what yesterday's choices were. Because yesterday's choices are what they were and the harvest is the lagging indicator. But today's choices matter for tomorrow's harvest. Today's choices matter for today. So who are you? Are you young? My advice is take care of your body while it's still easy. Er, <clears throat> I'm just going to give you a little news flash. It doesn't get, doesn't get easier as you get older. It's a shocker. Um, but take care of it. Take care of your finances. Take care of your relationships. Take care of your spiritual walk. If you're down the road away and you're like, yeah, that's right, I've done that, and I feel like it's brought some good results into my life. Wonderful. You're harvesting what was planted, but you're still planting today. I'm telling some of you who feel self-righteous, perhaps. I'm not, I'm not trying to knock us. That's good, that's good that you've done well. But, but I'm telling you, you know, what does the, Paul say in, in Corinthians? That those who think they stand, take heed lest they fall. You're planting tomorrow's harvest right now. And Solomon at some point along the way said, it's great, I got this. It's a sad story. And I'm talking to some people today you found yourself in a spot in life where you're like, I wish I would have done some things different. I wish I would have done it different. I can't go back. You can't go back, for good or bad. But here's the good news for you. Today matters. Today matters. Today's choices matter. Because it affects today, it affects tomorrow. And my hope for you is that all of us are excited to leave this place and carve out a future a harvest to come from the choices we begin to make now. That's a good thing. We can rise above yesterday's struggles and yesterday's successes. We can rise above yesterday's failures and victories. What you do today and who you are today, that matters. So who are you today? What are you doing today?